Hello everyone and welcome to the OMC Mindfulness in the Workplace podcast series. Each of these sessions explores a different aspect of mindfulness in different workplace contexts, as well as key themes that we believe will be relevant to you. Previous episodes have covered mindfulness in a medical setting, delivering mindfulness online, and current research in mindfulness. So do listen to them if you haven't already done so. I'm Susan Peacock from the University of Oxford Mindfulness Center. And today we are going to be discussing mindfulness in the context of the UK Parliament. I am delighted to welcome Chris Ruan, today's guest. As a member of the UK Parliament for 20 years between 1997 and 2019, working with the University of Oxford Mindfulness Centre, Chris Ruan introduced mindfulness to 280 politicians and 450 members of their staff. With the Mindfulness Initiative, he also helped to establish parliamentary practices in 10 other parliaments around the world. He served as an officer on cross-party parliamentary groups on mindfulness, the human gut, well-being, economics and art, culture and health. He has spoken at the United Nations, the Dalai Lama's Mind and Life Conference, and has delivered lectures on mindfulness at many universities, including Oxford Said Business School, Harvard, Berkeley, Bangor, Radboud, and Aarhus. He is currently a trustee of the University of Oxford Mindfulness Centre, the chair of trustees of Ruby Wax's Frazzled Cafe Charity, chair of the Mindfulness Initiative's International Political Network, and a member of the newly formed Mindfulness Wales. Wow, what an incredible journey. It is quite something to get a sense of how your personal passion has touched the lives of so many individuals alongside impacting parliaments around the world. What an honor it is to have this time with you. Thank you, Chris, and a very, very warm welcome. Thank you, Susan, for that uh, very nice introduction there. Mm-hmm. As politi- politicians, or even as former politicians, have to keep our egos under control. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's pretty impressive. Wow. Yeah. And, it's, and um, it's, it's great to be here t- t- today, Susan, t- talking with you on, the, on my journey and the, my passion for mindfulness here at the OMC that I love so much. And with you as uh, one of my teachers from Parliament that has helped me to come on in my mindfulness practice over the years. So it's a pleasure to be here. And it's great to be talking to this cohort of experienced mindfulness teachers that will be taking mindfulness into so many different areas of departments and professions all around the world. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Chris. So I would be delighted to understand a little bit more about your personal journey into mindfulness. My personal journey started when I was a young teacher in 1987 uh, in a Catholic primary school, the same primary school when I, that I went to when I was three years old. I went back to as a young teacher 
And uh, the school in 1987 was being inspected by Her Majesty's inspectors and the staff got the jitters and it was a bit contagious. So everybody was worried. So the head called in the school nurse and she taught us about meditation, not mindfulness, but meditation, but tension and release throughout the body and using the breath. Now, I enjoyed it so much and it worked for me. I wanted to take this gift that was given to me by the school nurse into my class of, uh, well, I think, the 39 young eight and nine year olds in those, in, in those days. And I would use it to relax them at the end of the day. So they left the school very calmly and quietly. Their parents were amazed. They wanted to, wanted to take me home to continue that. I used it for them for, to focus their attention after a wet and windy playtime. Just like 90 seconds of breathing would bring them back and, and bring their focus and attention. And I would use it for creative writing and art, poetry. So they used all of their uh, senses and engaged lots of emotions. So it was a great teaching tool for me back in 1987. I came to mindfulness in 2007 when I was helping my daughter, Seren, who has gone on to be a, a teacher in a primary school using mindfulness at the tender age of 26. She, back in 2007, she was doing a, a study of comparative religions and I was helping her. I came across Buddhism. And the more I read about it and realized the centrality of mindfulness, the more I got engaged in it. And I started to Google it on the internet, uh, came across Spirit Rock. So I used these podcasts, uh, two or 300 of them, to listen on the way down to London on the train. I'd listen to them. And it was the actual meditations and also the, the Dharma talks about the insights into mindfulness. So that was my personal journey. So, so so deeply kind of connected with you, impacting then these, these young children, your daughter, and from there it seems that it's really rippled out. Thinking back to when you first introduced mindfulness into Parliament in the UK, that feels like quite a brave thing to do. Can you say a bit about how you did this? I practice on these podcasts uh, and other articles and YouTubes that, that I came across for, for about five years. In 2012, again, I felt that this was a gift that had been given to me. Mindfulness was a gift that had been given to me that I wanted to give away to others. And I knew how stressed Parliament had been. We'd just come through the expenses scandal where some MPs had been accused of uh, fraudulently applying for public funds. And the whole place was stressed. Parliament was stressed. And I thought, uh, I'll take, see if I can take mindfulness into the United Kingdom Parliament. Now, I didn't have any context in the mindfulness world, but I did have a contact with Professor Richard Layard, a world expert on well-being, a Labour Lord in the House of Lords in Parliament, but also a professor at the London School of Economics. I approached Richard. He was very open to this. And I knew he was well connected. And he brought Professor Mark Williams from Oxford University and Chris Cullen to meet us in December 2012. And in January 2013, we established the first practice. We had 22 politicians and it has continued right to this very day. So it's eight years ago this month that we started. And in that time, I think we're actually up to about 295 politicians and 500 members of their staff over that eight year period. I'm working with a mindfulness initiative. I've been working to establish mindfulness practice in 10 other parliaments, 
but also that have actually introduced it, but also another 40 parliaments around the world or advocates and, and politicians in 40 parliaments to try and take mindfulness to, the, to those other parliaments. And that when we introduced it, or after we've introduced it in our parliaments and other parliaments, we did an analysis of what worked and what didn't work, what could be improved. And some of this might be a relevance to your listeners. I think what you do need is to have the best teacher that you can find. Is that saying you only have one chance to make a first impression? And obviously we were blessed in the United Kingdom with having Mark Williams and Chris Cullen, and later you yourself and Tessa Watts. So your teachers going out in these different fields will be the best because they've had excellent training. I think when you go into an organization, try and identify a leader, a catalyst that will help and work with you within the organization. I was that leader in the British Parliament and we've identified them in other parliaments. Pick your time that you have your meditation practice very, very carefully. We didn't have doodle poles in the olden days. That can, quite, that can be done now through doodle poles. Timing is key. And on that first session, use a little bit of pressure to get people there. Email them, text them, remind them. You said you were coming, make sure you come. Because once they taste mindfulness, they will get a, an a, a even bigger appetite for it. And try and normalize mindfulness. Lead, lead with the science. We've had no candles, no incense, uh, and we're even wary of uh, mindful movement in the first few weeks. So, so these are a few of the uh, lessons I think I've learned uh, through introducing mindfulness in the UK and in other parliaments around the world. Brilliant. I mean, those are such helpful observations. You know, this whole question around how it's positioned. And I think what you touch on is the role that somebody like you plays, an internal advocate, because there's nothing that gives it more credibility than people from within really connecting with peers and colleagues and saying, this helped me. And what's also lovely is noticing how other people pick that up and observe changes. So how would you say that the mindfulness training was positioned? Uh, well, people came to mindfulness in Parliament from different positions. Some wanted it for sleep, others for self-esteem, for performance in the chamber, uh, to cope with anxiety, stress and depression, or to help in their position uh, within Parliament. Uh, but Chris Cullen, uh, one of my favourite people on earth, has, uh, uses this lovely quote, mindfulness doesn't come in through the front door, it comes up through the floorboards. In other words, you might go in there for, to improve your sleep, but you might find that it, it works with your compassion or your self-compassion. And it works differently at different times, in different years or within a year. It's like, a, like a, an amorphous cloud which affects you at different times in different ways, in different circumstances. So I'll tell you how I didn't position it. I didn't position it as a clinical intervention or not solely as a clinical intervention. That wasn't the strap line. I think uh, certainly in a parliament, if you said that, you know, if you're distressed, if you've got mental illness coming, people wouldn't have crossed the door. I did position it for people like that, for people that I knew were struggling, people that had been in the media headlights and uh, had been shamed or, or, or whatever. And I would send them quietly a copy of Peace in a Frantic World book with a personalised handwritten letter. And this is Conservatives, Labour, Liberals, anyone that was suffering. I would send them this and say, look, this is a great book. We're following the course in Parliament. Come along. We meet on Tuesday at seven o'clock. 
So I did position it uh, for clinical intervention if I knew people were suffering, but I also positioned, positioned it from a sense of performance, of, of executive function. And Tracy Crouch, a conservative member, speaks a great story of how she would, uh, was really enjoying it. She came off antidepressants, she discovered mindfulness, she wanted to use it in the chamber. She needed a little bit more confidence. She was going to take her shoes off like she'd been taught to connect with the ground. She did that. She spoke with passion. And then she got a text from the conservative whips. Tracy, put your shoes back on. <laughs> oh, that's uh, such a so, uh, But also from a position of flourishing, to enjoy life, if you're, uh, to use all of your senses, all of your emotions, to take mindfulness, uh, to, uh, not just to be sitting on the mat or on the chair, to take mindfulness out into your personal world so that you lead a flourishing life. And the fourth aspect was from policy. I deliberately picked out ministers or shadow ministers, ministers in opposition, who had uh, responsibilities for health and education and mental illness, uh, and said, this, this course may benefit you. It's so rich what you say, because mindfulness has so much to offer and people never quite know what is needed at a particular time. And in that self-awareness, it kind of lands in different ways. I love what you were saying about you know, people from across the political spectrum coming along. And Parliament often comes across as quite a charged and potentially hostile environment. So this cross-party attendance feels really interesting. You're absolutely right. The UK Parliament is, uh, uh, politics is very polarised, and it's super polarised inside the chamber. It's a tiny chamber built for confrontation, not in a circle, not in an oval, but two benches opposite of each other with banked chairs, with banked uh, seating for the press and banked seating for the, uh, for the public all bearing down on just one person speaking. So it's, mm. it's, it's quite anxiety inducing, it's quite friction inducing. And we're not alone. The US politics is, is polarized, the Australian politics, other parliaments as well. It seems, especially in the English speaking world, that polarization has taken place. And I was one of the worst offenders. Back in 2011, uh, Quentin Letts, who was a comedy sketch writer who observed politicians in parliament for the Daily Mail, described me as a knuckle-dragging, torturous assistant. <laughs> I used to throw out barbs, I used to make witty comments, I used to bring the chamber out in laughter. Now, eight years later, uh, the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, said, uh, this is at Prime Minister's questions, when I questioned the British Prime Minister on mindfulness, that the Speaker, John Burko, intervened and said, the, the Honourable Gentleman is obviously a beneficiary of mindfulness himself. He seems a calm and phlegmatic fellow these days, which wasn't always the case. <laughs> well, that journey I'd gone on had been noticed by the no less than the Speaker of the House of Commons as well. So it has helped. It's not the age of Aquarius. You know, there's not peace and love and, and what have you, but it is changing for certain individuals in there. Tracy Crouch, as I mentioned before, who was a former chair of our old party group, said it's helped her to reach out in friendship across the political divide. The current Conservative chair of our all-party group, Tim Lawton, said it helps us to disagree better. Isn't that so key in a polarised society? You know, this ability to, to really take the perspective of someone else, be able to hear where they're coming from. 
And the comments you shared around other people's observations of how things have changed for you, I mean, that just speaks volumes. That in itself communicates so much about mindfulness to the wider group. So are there teaching points that have specifically felt relevant to you in your role as a parliamentarian? Yes, when I look back, cast my mind back over the uh, eight years that we've been receiving letter, uh, lessons in Parliament, there are a number of teaching points that come out. Well, the learning points for me, there were teaching points for the people who were teaching me. And if I reflect some of those back, it may help your listeners when they're developing their, uh, their programmes to think about these. One of the great things that we have in our weekly practice is we fill in a gratitude sheet. Five things that we're grateful for with an inspirational quote at the bottom. Now, as a classroom teacher myself, I realise the pedagogy behind this, that uh, you've got people coming in <clears throat> over a five or ten minute period, different times. If they are nice and still, reflecting on what they're grateful for, it sets a nice calm tone that you haven't got discussion beforehand. But it also hardwires gratitude. For me, it's hardwired gratitude into my mindfulness practice. So I think that's a learning point for me. Chris Cullen uh, great advice that he gave us, be playful with your practice, develop curiosity. And I think if that's something you can emphasize, and I do it, I may breathe in through one eyeball and breathe out through one toe just for messing about, just for the fun of it. I may take my breath down each one of my uh, vertebrae on my spine. Uh, I'm playful, uh, you know, I can do some visualizations. Uh, I, I'm curious with my mindfulness. So that's another great bit of advice from Chris Cullen. The signposting that I've received from expert teachers, and I'll include yourself on that, the reference to websites for poetry, for specific books for poetry. Chris Cullen told us to look at the Insight Timer, 70,000 different meditations, requires some negotiating around the, the website. Books that can help us, people who want to progress and deepen their practice, and the intellectual side of it. Uh, the, the signposting I've received from my teachers is brilliant. We've had day retreats, which have developed our practice, deepened our practice, and built bonds of friendship. That would be something you might want to explore. And uh, I think I mentioned it before, not just the eight lessons of the course, but leave a continuing practice in place. And also to develop your virtual skills. These have come to the fore over the past year, when the only way to deliver mindfulness is through uh, a computer screen. There are the downsides to that but there are positives. And it's been lovely to do group hugs on the screen in gallery format with 15 or 20 people sending in your loving kindness. And if somebody's going through a bad patch to give them a virtual communal hug, there are, there are positives out there. And also to appreciate the two-way, the symbiotic relationship between teacher and pupil. And I know this from being a teacher before. You can learn a lot from the people that you're teaching. And to keep a log, of your teaching and learning points, the poems, the quotes, the insights that you get, it will help you develop your own practice and help you when you want to pass it on to somebody else. Wonderful, those are such rich ideas and suggestions. I think you raised such an interesting point about this embedding into an organization and you know, the fact that there's this opportunity to explore all sorts of different avenues outside of your sessions within the organization, but then also meeting regularly as a group, um, yeah. which I think has been quite 
exceptional in the UK Parliament. Absolutely, and it is. It, it is. It's taking the the practice beyond the mat and beyond the beyond the chair out into the world. I think Tiknat Han said the miracle uh, is not walking on the water; it's walking on the earth, and we are closed down to so much of that. And the idea is that we sensitise our emotions and our our sensations to experience everything that is out there, good and bad. I'm really curious to know, how do you deal with the attacks on mindfulness as the new opium of the masses, a tool for companies to squeeze more out of their workers, or the latest from a couple of weeks ago, mindfulness leads to practitioners feeling spiritually superior? Well, can I first of all say there is nothing wrong with attacks on mindfulness? Uh, well, yeah. criticisms, critiques on mindfulness. I mean, there's a there's saying that every action in nature, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So mindfulness has been in the public spotlight now for uh, at least 10, to 10, 10 years. It's held up by many people, evangelise about it, including myself. And it is right that there is a critique of that. So there's nothing wrong, it is to be expected. And I think we have to be careful that we, we have a considered reaction and not a knee-jerk response to these criticisms. And uh, as you said, the, the, the uh, new opium of the masses, and, uh, masses, Buddhism through the back door, uh, on the right we said, uh, we hear, oh, this is just lefty tree huggers, these hippies, mindfulness is dangerous. Mindfulness is uh, for the white middle classes, not for people of color. I think we have to examine each and every one of these criticisms or critiques because in some of them there's a kernel of truth and that last one that I mentioned there mindfulness is for the white middle classes I think there is a big element of, of truth in there now I won't go through each and every one of those criticisms and a response to it but if I can refer you to an excellent document building the case for mindfulness in the workplace uh, for the mindfulness initiative and again, Jamie Bristow, who, who uh, co-wrote this with other experts in the field, deals uh, with exactly with these critiques, dealing with common myths on page 27 to 20, uh, 29 of this excellent document. So the, the responses are there and those criticisms will come. And uh, as they say in, in the scout movement, be prepared. Great, great. So what do you see as the potential for mindfulness to deal with problems facing society? Uh, there's, there's absolutely huge potential. When you look at the issues that are facing the world today, I mean, the number one health burden for the whole of the planet, according to the World Health Organization, is depression. By 2030, depression will be the biggest health burden on the whole of the planet. Uh, that's probably being brought forward now because of COVID. And that's an existential threat in itself. And the World Health Organization are warning that the, the tail, the mental health, or mental ill health, mental illness will last for years, if not decades. We need to address that. Political polarization, we've discussed. Climate change, artificial intelligence, robotics, the impact that's going to have on economies. All of those issues are out there. And the World Economic Forum, which is like the, the, the club of the captains of the universe, have come up with a list of 10 essential skills for leadership. I'll rattle through them. I'll leave a link at the end. But they are cognitive flexibility, 
emotional intelligence, negotiation, people management, coordination with others, judgment and decision-making, creativity, critical thinking, complex problem solving, and service orientation. So they're not technical skills, they're not academic skills. These are skills of the heart and mind, which mindfulness can help develop. I think Jamie uh, Bristow, I often call Jamie, in, uh, in Mindful Nation, or the, in fact, I've built in the case for mindfulness in the workplace, groups mindfulness skills into four groups, attention, impulse control, kindness and compassion, and metacognition or gaining perspective. And our leaders need these skills. The World Economic Foundation Forum says, these are the skills we need. These are the skills that mindfulness can bring. And I think the teachers who are listening to this podcast are leaders in the field themselves. They are going out to law, to politics, to the arts, to the education, to health. If they can help with a mindfulness program for those leaders to make those critical decisions from a position of balance and equanimity, they will do, be doing their best for themselves as humans, the best for themselves as an organization, and the best for the world and the planet. So your teachers, like me, have gone through the mindfulness metamorphosis. They have felt that change. I wanted to be, as Gandhi said, be the change you want to see. And I've done my part in politics with helping to bring about the Mindful Nation Report, looking at health, education, workplace, criminal justice, bringing experts, 80 contributors, uh, eight evidence sessions in Parliament, 120 academic references. And we've made recommendations in these fields that are specific, achievable and costed. When it was launched, there were four Conservative ministers there at the event. There's political traction and we've made progress. And what we've done in Parliament can be done by, in many of those fields, law, politics, the arts, education and health, can be done. And hopefully your teachers will be the catalyst for change in those organisations. Wow, just such an inspiring vision. And what's quite interesting is thinking of a comment John kabat made where he spoke of the work that had been done and in, within the UK Parliament taking mindfulness from the fringe into center stage. So, you know, the work that you have done, the passion that you have taken forwards has just had such a profound impact. You know, in our conversation today, you have provided so many tips and thoughts and suggestions which are invaluable. If there was one top tip that you would recommend and offer to mindfulness trainers who are wanting to teach in a workplace setting. What might your final comments around that be? Well, it would, it would be around, a, again, to, uh, to, to quote John Kabat-Zinn, I lost the 2015 general election. I was unemployed. I was volunteering uh, for the Mindfulness Initiative. Uh, we were making these contacts around the world, and uh, we were organising an international conference in the House of Commons, the, the, the mother of parliaments, 45 politicians from 14 different nations. And John Kabat-Zinn, he came over and he said to Jamie and I, uh, Jamie Bristow and myself, this, this, the work you are doing is amongst the most important on the planet. And for somebody that was unemployed, that meant a real great shift, a boost. It gave me confidence, drive and determination to carry on. And if I had to give one tip to the teachers who are attending this course, it's to say to them, not that I'm any John Kabat-Zinn, but the work that you are doing 
is amongst the most important in the planet. There needs to be a mind shift in the planet. If we do not have that mind shift, we are going down the road to oblivion. And our leaders need these skills. And you, as teachers, you are doing a great job. You've shown your commitment uh, through this professional training that you're receiving from the OMC. And the seeds that you sow will bear fruit for decades to come. So uh, my top tip is put yourself in that. You're part of the vision. You are doing excellent work. The world needs the work that you're doing. So give yourself a pat on the back and I wish you well. And if there's any help that I can give, I'm on LinkedIn. I no longer do Twitter or Facebook. I haven't been on there for a year, uh, but I'm on, on LinkedIn. Susan, if you could leave my email address at the end. And if there's any help that I can give you taking mindfulness to these organizations, let me know. I've lectured at universities, I've given talks to legal profession, businesses, parliaments, governments around the world. I'm here to help. Chris, what an incredibly generous offer. Thank you. Thank you so much for this very rich conversation. And thank you to our listeners for carving out the time. And we look forward to you joining us for the next podcast. Thank you.